ASIP, the voice of interventional pain management. The ASIP podcast is sponsored by Boston Scientific. In a registry of 800 patients, 72% of patients used multiple waveforms when given the option. Boston Scientific's Precision Spectra SCS system offers customized pain relief, delivering multiple waveforms to a precise neural target. You want options? Boston Scientific delivers. The ASIP podcast is also sponsored by Medtronic your partner in personalized pain solutions for patients with musculoskeletal pain, cancer pain, severe spasticity, or chronic pain. To learn more about Medtronic Solutions, call 888-638-7627 or visit back.com. Welcome once again to the ASIP Podcast. This is Tom Prigge, and on this edition, we'll be talking with ASIP's current president, Dr. Aaron Kolodny. Our news segment this time has a number of marijuana stories, both medical and otherwise, as well as stories about depressed medical residents, a gene that holds the key to potential pain treatments, and more. Also, I'd like to hear from you regarding this podcast, whether you have praise, criticism, or suggestions just send me a quick and simple email. My email address is quick and simple too. It's just tom, T-O-M, at ASIP, A-S-I-P-P, dot O-R-G. Well, we have some didactic courses coming up in August in Las Vegas. The courses are Controlled Substance Management, Business Management for IPM, Practical Aspects, Regenerative Medicine Review Course, and Hands-On Cadaver Workshop, and an Interventional Techniques Hands-On Cadaver Workshop. Now, lectures for the Interventional Techniques are pre-recorded, so when you sign up for that course, we will send you a link to the lectures online. Also, in response to member demand, we will be offering a Spinal Cord Stimulation Comprehensive Review Course and Cadaver Workshop in October. That course will be held in Orlando. If you have ever wanted to add SCS to your armamentarium, well, this is your chance. Details on all of these courses, including the dates, times, and registration information, can be found on our website, which is www.asip.org. The ASIP podcast is sponsored in part by St. Jude Medical, makers of spinal cord stimulation and radiofrequency therapy products, Visit them at professional.sjm.com. And by Stimwave, maker of the Freedom Spinal Cord Stimulation System. Find out more about the Freedom Spinal Cord System at www.stimwave.com. Up next, a conversation with ASIP President Dr. Aaron Kolodny. Stay with us here on the ASIP Podcast. We are very happy to have with us on the ASIP podcast, ASIP's current president, 
And that is Dr. Aaron Kolodny. And Dr. Kolodny is uh, talking to us from Texas. Hello, Dr. Kolodny. How are you this morning? Pretty good. Pretty good. Where, where exactly in Texas are you? I am in Tyler, Texas, which is about 90 to 100 miles east of Dallas. Now, are you a, a Texas native? I am not, but I've been in Texas for 25 to 30 years, so uh, uh, I'm pretty close to being a native by this point. That's kind of like here in Kentucky. You can live here forever, but you're never really a native. But so long as you root for the Kentucky Wildcats, you're, you're accepted. What's, what's the big <laughs> team? <laughs> what's the team that you root for down uh, there? Well, we've, we've got season tickets to the Cowboys, and we're also big Rangers fans. So uh, okay. uh, I guess we qualify as native Texans now. Tell us about your your, your medical background. How many years uh, you've been practicing interventional pain management? I've been in the field of interventional pain for well over 25 years. I've been in Tyler as part of a neurosurgical group for almost 25 years, practicing with some of the same neurosurgeons now that I started out with back in 1991 and 1992. Prior to that, I spent about four years teaching at the medical school in Houston at the University of Texas Health Science Center in the Department of Anesthesiology, where I uh, worked uh, uh, under uh, and with the late but great Prithvi Raj. And so uh, your your involvement with, with ASIP also goes back a number of years, doesn't it? Yes, I've been involved with ASIP since it was the original organization, the Society of Pain Management Anesthesiologists, and I've been actively involved throughout uh, the last, uh, goodness, 15, 16 years and watched the organization grow and mature into the wonderful and powerhouse organization that it is currently. So you were right in on the on the ground floor back in that would have been like 1998 or so thereabouts. Yes, yeah. uh, ASIP uh, was founded back in 1998. It was the brainchild of Dr. Manchikani, and the original membership was perhaps uh, less than a hundred, and many of those were uh, his colleagues and. Uh, those folks that he worked with uh, around his practice. So in the years since 1998, the organization has matured and grown. Uh, the name has changed to reflect our membership. It's not just anesthesiologists. It's all physicians who have an interest in interventional pain. And with the name change and the maturation of the organization, the membership has grown tremendously, and currently the membership is nearly 4,500 physicians and other healthcare-related personnel. At our annual meeting, which was held back in, in April in Texas, in your home state in, in Dallas, you were installed as the ASIP president. Uh, what, what do you hope to accomplish uh, during your presidency? What, what are your goals for ASIP uh, during your time in office? 
Well, first, uh, it was really an honor to have the annual scientific meeting in Dallas, which I sort of claim as my home base since we're quite close to the metropolitan area of Dallas. It was very nice uh, to have all of my partners and uh, my family there uh, uh, when I uh, uh, became president of ASIP. I am thrilled and humbled with the responsibility of being president of the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians. This organization started small and has now grown to be a driving force in the preservation of interventional pain for our patients, for our practices, and throughout the United States. I see many challenges that I hope that I can play a role in overcoming over the next year as the president of this organization. ASIP has established a reputation as one of the most influential and involved organizations in healthcare policy nationally and at the state level throughout the United States. And ASIP has done that basically single-handedly over the period of the last 15 or 16 years. I am hopeful that I can help ASIP and other organizations pool their talent and work in harmony to achieve goals that we all are hoping to achieve. And essentially, the top goal is to preserve the specialty of interventional pain and interventional spine uh, for our patients uh, and for our futures. So what kind of opportunities do, do you see for ASIP and the specialty of interventional pain? There are tremendous opportunities currently in the field of interventional pain, many of which have been brought into focus due to the recent problem and epidemic that we have seen with the oral opioids that uh, have caused so much turmoil throughout the United States. Patients and physicians, policymakers, and legislators are all looking for a solution to this problem that has become rampant with regards to opioids and unintentional death uh, and uh, addiction uh, that goes along with uh, the overprescription of opioid-containing medications. This presents a challenge to the doctors in ASIP, but it also presents an opportunity because we possess the skills and the knowledge and the techniques that are available to provide patients with relief of pain without the use of opioids or minimizing the use of opioids. So I see one of the opportunities that we have in the near term over the next two to three years is to explain and educate the policymakers uh, and the uh, payors about the benefits of the procedural 
aspect of interventional pain that we can provide that can help decrease the reliance on oral opioid medications. You know, you bring up a, a great point because with my employment with, with ASIP, I am always on the lookout for any kind of media reports about the opioid epidemic. And a lot of the reports that I see suggest uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or physical therapy, which which have their place, but I I rarely see IPM mentioned in those. So that is uh, something that, that you plan on concentrating on? Yes. Certainly there's a place for cognitive behavioral therapy right. and physical therapy in the treatment of musculoskeletal disorders and pain. Uh, and that is part of the practice of interventional pain medicine is to utilize those tools appropriately. But we have other tools at our disposal that are absolutely perfectly situated to help our patients decrease their reliance on opioids and to help our membership and other interventional pain physicians decrease their utilization and reliance on opioids. It's really a matter of uh, educating the public and the payers and the legislators about what it is that we have to offer. Uh, everyone is looking for a solution to the problem. And as interventional pain specialists, and specifically as ASIP, we have solutions to this problem. People who are listening to the podcast uh, who are not involved, what can you give them as, as advice? What would you tell them of how they can get involved with ASIP? You've been involved with ASIP for, as you said, a number of years. You've uh, served in some other areas, and now you're president. Somebody who has not been actively involved, just maybe paying their dues, what would you say to them about getting involved more with with ASIP and the various activities that this organization has? Sure. I think that the first thing that our membership uh, should do if they want to become more involved with the organization is to take advantage of all the things that the organization has to offer. Uh, let me give you some examples, if I might. Okay. Such as education. Our members should take advantage of our interventional techniques workshops, which are uh, beautifully done and excellent avenues to increase their technical skills uh, at a variety of interventional spine-related uh, interventions. Uh, we also offer a pain medicine board review course, and so members who are thinking of taking the pain boards or who are thinking of trying to become ABIP certified should take advantage of those review courses. Uh, also in that review course is uh, a section on controlled substance management. And as I mentioned, ASIP is leading the way uh, in regards to education regarding the use and proper use that is of controlled substances. So in addition to that, members who want to become more involved should really go through the certification process and become ABIP, that's the American Board of Interventional Pain Physicians certified. 
This is a specialty board that provides board certification in interventional pain and controlled substance management. And it is recognized as board certification in many states. So once our members that are interested in becoming involved have taken advantage of our educational offering and have become ABIP certified, then my suggestion is that they volunteer to serve on one of our many committees. Committee membership is a terrific way to become more involved with this organization and to get to know the other physicians who are leaders in the organization or who are up and coming future leaders in this organization. And through working at the committee level, they can become more aware of what ASIP does on a day-to-day -day basis, and they can learn how to become more involved. Now, alternatively, of course, we invite all of our members to become more involved on a political uh, level, and we have uh, coming up in a few weeks a uh, legislative uh, session where we are uh, coming to Washington, D.C. to talk to our legislators about a variety of issues, and we always welcome members uh, to help uh, with that endeavor. Yeah, at the time that, that we are recording this interview, I believe that is uh, sometime in September, a, a specific date has has not been set, but we'll be alerting all the members when exactly that's going to be up there in Washington. Yes. Being involved on the state level is important also. Yes. Uh, being involved at the local and state level is very important. Uh, for a national organization like ASIP, ASIP nationally needs to have boots on the ground in each of the states. And in fact, we do. Uh, ASIP has a, uh, an organization in uh, essentially every state uh, of the United States. Uh, and each of those organizations is active in their local and regional politics and uh, advocacy efforts. So that is uh, really one of the many strong points about ASIP is that it does have depth in every state of the United States. And that has come in very handy uh, as uh, policy decisions at the state level that affect our membership and our patients are made that we can affect uh, a change upon those decisions in a positive way. I know that Dr. Manchikani likes to quote uh, House Speaker Tip O'Neill, who was the Speaker of the House during the Reagan administration. Uh, he famously said that all politics are local. And uh, Dr. Manchikani is a big believer in that. And so being involved on the state level is important to uh, the viability of ASIP. Uh, absolutely. It's it's one of the reasons why ASIP has been so effective. Uh, we have members in many states who have uh, uh, strong uh, personal relationships with their legislators on the state level and on the national level. And uh, that sort of open dialogue is so important to allow uh, our legislators and policymakers to understand what it is that we do and to understand how they can facilitate us so that we can help our patients better. All right. So don't just sit on the sidelines. Get involved with, with ASIP. That's the, the take-home message here, right? Absolutely. We, right. We, welcome, we welcome everyone's involvement. And uh, 
uh, everybody uh, has a, a voice in this organization. We all are uh, really looking to achieve the same goal, and that is to uh, uh, provide uh, uh, the absolute best care that we can for our patients that uh, have uh, chronic pain. All right. Thank you so much for talking with us, Dr. Aaron Kaladny, the current president of ASIP, and we hope that we will be talking to you uh, some other time here on the ASIP podcast. It's been my pleasure. It's time for the news segment of the ASIP podcast, where we take a look at pain and general medical news that you might have missed. We have a number of stories this month concerning marijuana. First up, researchers at the Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Colorado report that patients diagnosed with migraines saw a significant drop in frequency when they were treated with medical marijuana. Their findings were published in the journal Pharmacotherapy. Now, 121 patients were enrolled in the study. 103 reported a decrease in the number of migraines. 15 remained the same, and 3 had an increase. Overall, headache days went from 10.4 per month to just 4.6 per month. Cannabis's mechanism of action in reducing migraines is unknown. Ideally, say these researchers, a randomized placebo-controlled trial should be undertaken, but current federal laws regarding marijuana make that impossible. The state of Washington allows recreational use of marijuana. Now, since enacting its law, Washington has seen fatal automobile wrecks related to drivers who had recently used marijuana double from 8% to 17%. Now, coming up with a test to measure impairment similar to what there is for alcohol is problematic for a number of reasons. The most obvious is that measuring THC concentration requires a blood sample, something much more invasive than a breathalyzer, and which by the time the sample is taken, the concentration is likely to be lower than it was when the person was driving. In addition, there is no scientific evidence that spells out what level of THC actually causes impairment. Women are often warned they should not take certain drugs if they are pregnant or intend to become pregnant. A study conducted in the Netherlands and published in Biological Psychiatry reports that children born to mothers who smoked marijuana during pregnancy had a thicker prefrontal cortex. It is estimated that 2% to 13% of women worldwide use marijuana while pregnant. The study's authors say more research is needed to explore any causal relationship between prenatal marijuana exposure and structural brain abnormalities. A study published in Health Affairs has found that states that legalized medical marijuana saw a decline in Medicare prescriptions for conditions for which marijuana is often prescribed, including chronic pain, anxiety, depression, nausea, psychosis, seizures, sleep disorders, and spasticity. Medicare Part D data were looked at from 2010 through 2013. Right now, 25 states in the District of Columbia allow medical marijuana. According to the researchers, in 2013, medical marijuana saved Medicare $165 million. If extrapolated to the entire country, Medicare could save $470 million. Now, to put that in perspective, $470 million 
is one-half of 1% of Medicare's total expenditures. Well, that's it for the marijuana news. Let's move on to some other medical news. The journal Academic Medicine reports that just over one-third of medical residents, 35%, experience clinically significant depression. Getting them to talk about it and seek treatment is part of the problem. A common theme for these depressed residents is that they do not get enough time with patients. On average, just 10% of their time is spent with patients. Instead, instead they uh, spend up to 60% of their time managing electronic medical records. The residents in the study did not have a clinical diagnosis of depression. Rather, their depression was self-reported. The U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services maintains a database called the Open Payments Database that lists payments from pharmaceutical and medical device companies to physicians and teaching hospitals. In 2015, those payments totaled $6.5 billion. Leading the way was Novartis, which paid out $539 million, followed by Genentech at $470 million, and Pfizer at $436 million. Now, despite being in third place in terms of money spent, Pfizer was first in the number of payments made. Also, Novartis had a huge increase from the previous year, going from $302 million in 2014 to $539 million in 2015, an increase of $237 million. The report from CMS says that financial transactions between doctors and pharma that were related to opioids amounted to nearly 2.3% of the $6.5 billion, or uh, roughly $150 million. The highest paid specialties in order were nuclear medicine with an average payment of $51,200, followed by neurological surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, and radiologists. Well, have you ever heard of the gene SCN9A? According to researchers, this gene holds the key to new pain treatments. SCN9A is responsible for producing a pain-related protein uh, called NAV1.7. Mutations in this gene can act like an on-off switch for pain. There's currently a race on to develop a drug that can toggle that switch off by blocking NAV1.7. A number of biotech companies are working on bringing such a drug to market, including big names like Genentech, Biogen, Amgen, and Purdue Pharma. After development and the required trial phases, it will most likely be a number of years before such a drug is available, provided it even works as theorized. NAV 1.7 is also emerging as having an important role in regulating body weight. An herbal supplement primarily sold at gas stations, is said to be as addictive as heroin. It is called Kratom. That's spelled K-R-A-T-O-M. Kratom. It's a plant native to Southeast Asia, where its traditional use is as a stimulant boiled into a tea. At higher doses, it has an analgesic effect because it binds to mu opioid receptors. The active ingredients in Kratom are metragenine and hydrometragenine. Consumers never really know what concentration of Kratom they are getting when they buy it or if the Kratom is adulterated with other products. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration calls Kratom, quote, 
a drug of concern. Alabama designated Kratom as a Schedule I drug. It is also banned in Wisconsin, Tennessee, Vermont, Indiana, and Arkansas. And finally, having the chickenpox as a child puts one at risk of developing herpes zoster, commonly called shingles, and the ensuing postherpetic neuralgia. Now, that's the bad news that everyone knows about. The good news about having had chickenpox is that it reduces the risk for developing glioma. A retrospective study done at the Baylor College of Medicine found that those with a history of chickenpox are 21% less likely to develop this type of brain cancer. Their findings were published in the journal Cancer Medicine. The ACIP podcast is sponsored by Medtronic, your partner in personalized pain solutions for patients with musculoskeletal pain, cancer pain, severe spasticity, or chronic pain. To learn more about Medtronic Solutions, call 888-638-7627 or visit back.com. The ACIP podcast is also sponsored by Boston Scientific. In a registry of 800 patients, 72% of patients used multiple waveforms when given the option. Boston Scientific's Precision Spectra SCS system offers customized pain relief delivering multiple waveforms to a precise neural target. You want options? Boston Scientific delivers. Well, let's take a look at some state society news. The New York and New Jersey societies will sponsor Pain Medicine Symposium, Evolving Advanced Pain Therapies, November 3rd through the 6th in Jersey City, New Jersey. And California will hold their 7th annual meeting November 11th through the 13th in Santa Barbara. Now, meeting agendas and registration information can be found for both of these state meetings on the ASIP website, which is ASIP.org, A-S-I-P-P.org. Just click on State Society Meetings on the ASIP homepage. Support for the ASIP podcast comes from Stimwave, maker of the Freedom Spinal Cord Stimulation System. Find out more about the Freedom Spinal Cord System at www.stimwave.com. And by St. Jude Medical, makers of spinal cord stimulation and radiofrequency therapy products. Visit them at professional.sjm.com. And finally, we all know there is no cure for the common cold. Or is there? Research published in the American Journal of Human Biology reports that getting multiple tattoos strengthens immunological responses. Now, the researchers collected saliva samples from tattoo parlor patrons before and after getting their new ink. This had to be a job that was given to a grad student. Anyway, they found that the more tattoos someone got, the less immunoglobulin A decreased in response to a higher cortisol level because of the stress put on the body when receiving a tattoo. And the lead author, Christopher Lynn, Ph.D. of the University of Alabama, has a number of other research areas he is interested in, according to his website. They include, quote, the neuroanthropology of dissociation, deafferentation, and trance. So I guess our takeaway take here is if you sneeze, go get a tattoo.
Well, that's it for this month. This is Tom Priggy. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me again next month for the ASIP podcast. <laughs>